Take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. This morning, the title of my message is, Because God Loves Us. What we find in Luke chapter 15 is Jesus sharing with us three parables, which are a series connected to one another. And they're not to be viewed so much separately as each one compounding on top of the other to teach a lesson that Jesus wants to convey. And in these parables, if you've ever had the question, what's God like? Or the question, what's God up to? Or the question, how does God feel about me? These parables answer those questions. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Most often, parables are short stories, and they're spoken to a particular audience with a specific purpose in mind. And most often, the audience are those that are gathered around Jesus at the moment that he speaks the parable. And Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, Jesus is shown speaking to a mixture of a very odd, unlikely mixture of tax collectors and sinners. And then off to the side, there's another group of people quite different from that group, and they're the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, both of these people, groups of people are gathered around Jesus, but for entirely different reasons. The tax collectors and the sinners are drawn to Jesus because the word on the street is Jesus speaks about loving people unconditionally. They know the situation of their own lives. They feel ostracized from what is formal religion as they have known it. And everything that they have heard is, brings conviction to their lives and they feel worthless And so they've come to Jesus, they're drawn to Jesus because they're looking for unconditional love. The Pharisees and the scribes, on the other hand, are there for a different reason entirely. They're there listening to the words of Jesus, scrutinizing every word he speaks because they want to discredit the message of Jesus as well as the messenger. And they're listening for every word he speaks to try to catch him in a theological fallacy. So here are these two groups of people, one front and center, one off to the side. And you have the Pharisees and the scribes off to the side who look upon this group right in front of Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners. But when they look upon them, they look upon them in disgust. Why would he associate with people like that? And as they begin to talk about these people that are standing there with Jesus, their voices begin to rise, and they begin to complain about them and their lifestyles and complain about Jesus being the one who is choosing to associate with them, and their voices rise higher and higher until they become a disruption. And they can be overheard by the crowd, and Jesus hears what they're saying. 
And what we have in Luke chapter 10, uh, 15, verses 1 through 10, is we see how Jesus handles this situation. I want you to follow along with me in God's Word. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 15, as we begin reading at the first verse, you follow along with me, Scripture's on the screen. <clears throat> All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he rejoices puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman who has 10 silver coins... If she leases one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels over the sinner who repents. This is God's word. And it's true. And faithful. Let's pray. Lord, open my heart, my eyes, my ears to be able to see the truth you want to speak to me today. And Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Thank you that you alone know every heart here, every mind, every experience, that no one in this room is left out of what you want to say to us, you have something particular in mind you want to say to each of us, and you know just the way to say it. So, Lord, we now come before you in prayer saying we're open, we're listening. Speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, these parables are not as mysterious as perhaps as some that Jesus tells, but it's not the parables that are dark that need us to interpret them. It's we who are dark. And the parables interpret us. Hearing the, the disgust in the voices of these very religious people, Jesus decides he's going to set the record straight. He's going to speak to both groups of people, and so he tells three parables. The third one, which we did not read this morning, is the most recognizable one. It's often known as the, what, the parable of the prodigal son. And in reality, it's the parable of the loving father. Yet when he tells these first two stories, Jesus speaks to this group and he has a very particular message he's trying to convey. He wants the tax collectors and he wants the sinners to know that regardless of their lack of piety, 
regardless of whatever sin they may have committed, regardless of what others say about them or how they are perceived by others, God does love them. God does want them. God wants them to come near to him and they need to understand that they are the very people God's pursuing. They're valuable to God. And God wants to reclaim them. The parables teach us those three things about the love of God. What's God like? What's God doing right now? And I want you to see with me this morning in this passage, as Jesus wants us to see, that because God loves us, He faithfully pursues us, He greatly values us, and He joyfully reclaims us. The setting, as we know, is given to us in these first three verses. And there's a duality in each story based upon who the audience is and how they hear the story through their ears and their own experiences. The tax collectors and the sinners listening to the story could easily identify with the lost sheep and the lost coin and those that were searching for them. The scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, had a different way of listening to the stories. Because when they would listen to the stories, what they would do is they would reflect upon the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. And listening to the Hebrew Bible, because of their familiarity with it and because they spent hours every day studying the Tanakh, because they spent hours every day memorizing Scripture, committing it to memory, when they would listen to the words of Jesus, what they would do is they would compare what he's saying against what they have read and what they have memorized. Now, there are three different sections in the Tanakh, and they're familiar with all three of them. They're familiar with the Torah. That's the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. They're familiar with the Nevi'im, which is the books of the prophets, and they're familiar with the Ketuvim, which is the compilation of the writings. They've studied them, they've memorized them over and over again. And so these are the things that come to their mind. Each day of the week, the scribes spent countless hours studying the Hebrew scriptures. And to them, what was most important was applying those scriptures to their own life experiences. But Jesus understands the heart of every person. There's no two people in this room at exactly the same place today. We're all on a different journey, but we have one God who knows exactly where we are on that spiritual journey. And so when Jesus tells this parable, he looks into the hearts of all the people who are there and he can see right through them. And he knows of the Pharisees and the scribes that though they have been in the Word and though they know the Word backwards and forwards, 
that there's something not quite right. They know the letter of the law, but they miss the spirit of it. And Jesus even says in another place in John chapter 5, verses 37 to 40, and I'll briefly summarize those verses for you, but copy them down. You can look them up later. He says, you pour over the scriptures because in them you believe that they have life. And yet you do not know that the scriptures speak of me, but you do not come to me for life. So Jesus says, it's possible for you and me to be in the Word, to memorize the Scriptures, and to see only the surface of it, and to totally miss the heart of God and what God is trying to say to us through the Scripture. Now, obviously, what we have here are two stories that Jesus gives to us, and the first one's the parable of the lost sheep. And I want us to revisit the story by reading it once again. Would you look with me again, beginning at verse 3, and he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. Now I think as I looked at this parable, I thought of it in terms of the truth about sheep, the truth about shepherds, the truth for the tax collectors and sinners, the truth for the Pharisees and the scribes, and the truth for us. First of all, what's the truth about sheep? Now, most of us have heard that sheep are dumb. And for the most part, that's correct. But sheep are not entirely witless. In fact, even though they may stray away from a shepherd if they're not contained in a pen or guarded closely, they may wander off fall off the side of a cliff, get caught in a thicket, put themselves in a dangerous situation. The truth about sheep is that they actually have a very high emotional intelligence and some cognitive ability. It's true, and these are three true statements about sheep. Sheep are incredibly caring. They form deep bonds with the other sheep in their fold. They connect with their young. Like humans, they also bond these lasting bonds with one another, and they even mourn the loss of one of the sheep in their own fold. It is true also of sheep that they can recognize the faces and the voices of up to 50 other sheep or 50 other humans. So when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 14, 15, and 27, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I die down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
Now, when Jesus uses those words, he's using imagery that is very familiar to his audience. See, the crowd around Jesus in Luke chapter 15 was very familiar with the sheep and with the shepherds. They're familiar with the shepherds and how they are guided together. Uh, The sheep are guided together by the shepherd. They are familiar with the fact that the sheep recognizes the voices of the shepherd. He guides them. They follow his direction. They know that sheep trust their shepherd implicitly. Now, that's the truth about the sheep. But what about the truth about the shepherds? These people that are standing in front of Jesus are also familiar with the role of the shepherds. You see, what they have done in their lifetimes without putting forth any effort whatsoever is they've watched the shepherds guide these sheep out in the fields. They've also seen them guide them across the city streets and the streets of villages. They've seen how the sheep respond to the voices and recognize the voice of their shepherd. And that's why Jesus chooses this analogy between sheep and shepherds to demonstrate his point in our passage. The crowd knows what happens when a sheep goes missing. A shepherd leaves all the other sheep in the care of the other shepherds and goes off in search of the one sheep that is lost. Checks the thicket. Looks for signs where the sheep is gone. Looks for the hoof marks. Also looks for any trail of blood that may indicate the sheep has been attacked by a predator and dragged off somewhere. And in his search, he calls out for the sheep, possibly even by name. And when he calls out for the sheep, He tries to coax the sheep back to safety of his care. And when he finds that missing sheep, it's with excitement. And he throws the sheep over his shoulders and runs back with the fold. And that's when all the other sheep join in with the excitement. And the shepherds that are with him rejoice that he has found the lost sheep. It's been returned to the fold. In telling this story, Jesus is demonstrating that no matter how we got to where we are, or why we are where we are in our spiritual journey, whether we have strayed away with God because of sexual immorality, or because of thievery, or because of lying. The shepherd, the great shepherd of our souls, is pursuing us. He's coming after us. He wants us. That shepherd knows his flock by name. And his sheep hear his voice. Now, I said there's a duality in this story. The duality in the story is that the story is perceived based upon who's listening to the story. Clearly, the tax collectors and the sinners would be focused on the lost sheep and the shepherd who'd gone after them to find them. The Pharisees and the scribes had 
committed large portions of Scripture to memory, and they could identify the story with certain passages of Scripture that were familiar to them. And so perhaps their minds in that moment went back to the words of the prophet Ezekiel, who had these words to share with the people of Israel long before Jesus spoke this parable. Now this is a very long passage of scripture that I'm going to read now, but I want you to follow along with it very closely because I want you to see the connection between what Ezekiel had to say, between the Lord's conversation with his people, the nation of Israel, and what Jesus had to say to these who were standing before him today. Let's look at it together in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 through 16. Listen to this. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the loss. Instead, you've ruled them with violence and cruelty. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Because my flock lacking a shepherd has become prey and food for every wild animal, and because my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flocks, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and total darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries, and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They'll feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I'll destroy the fat and strong. I'll shepherd them with justice. Wow. You're a Pharisee and you're a scribe and you're listening to the words of Jesus to scrutinize every word that he's saying and you recognize immediately 
the similarities between the imagery Jesus is using and the words of Ezekiel. And you realize he's talking to you. And he's saying to them, you've not looked after my flock. You haven't been a good shepherd. You've been neglectful. In fact, you've been abusive. And what he's saying to them and he's saying to us, as he's saying, God is a God of mercy. And he's also a God of justice. God cares about people. And he diligently and passionately pursues us when we stray. And when he finds his sheep, he rejoices. And all we need to do is be open to the voice of the shepherd and responsive to his voice when he calls us. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and he tells a second story, the parable of the lost coin. And in verses 8 through 10, we read these words of Jesus. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. All cultures have unique traditions and unique practices associated with the people in their culture. And this is true for the Hebrews when it came to marriage. In Hebrew courtship, there were actually stages of the courtship. And what would happen is, is typically marriages were arranged by two families, the two heads of the two families. Many times, the two people who were joined to one another didn't even know each other because the arrangement had taken place when they were just children. Yeah, I'm seeing some of you parents out there nodding your head saying, bring that back. We need to... What would happen is, is there would be a betrothal period. And this would be like our understanding of an engagement. But the couple would not come together for some period of time. The period of betrothal could last any time from the beginning of puberty all the way through the age of 20. It would go through stages. And before they actually were joined together, they would be known as husband and wife without having conjugal relations. And we recognize this was the situation with Mary and Joseph, right? That when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant before they came together, he considered divorcing her quietly to protect her reputation. And it wasn't until after the angel visited Joseph 
that he decided to continue with their betrothal and delayed the consummation of their union until after Jesus was born. Now what would happen is when the two parents would come together, they would enter into a contract. The contract was known as the ketubah. And what the ketubah was, was it was a contract that was so binding that for either of the persons to separate from the other one would be comparable to them being divorced. Now, as a part of the process, and contrary to most other cultures around them, the Hebrew culture differed in this way. Rather than the bride's family paying a dowry to the groom's family, the groom's family paid a dowry to the bride's family. And the bride's father would typically receive 10 silver coins as part of the dowry. The father of the bride would receive the coins, and then he would present them to his daughter, and his daughter would take the 10 coins, and she would sew those 10 coins into a headdress that would be worn on her wedding day. And I have a picture of this on the screen for you this morning. I want you to see this picture. This is an image of a Jewish bride wearing a headband with 10 coins. Do we have the picture? There it is. Now, this is not a biblical times picture. You can see the lipstick and the eyeliner, and I kind of got a little laugh out of that when I showed the picture. But this is a true depiction of what took place among these uh, prospective brides. Now imagine she learns that she is missing one of those 10 coins. Frantically, she would go looking throughout the house to try to find that 10th coin. She's preparing her wedding headdress, but something's missing. In a culture where money is hard to come by, and where most trading among most families was done through the barter system, she would have gone at great lengths to try to recover this coin because of the embarrassment it would cause her father and also because it'd be perceived as an outright slap in the face of the groom's family who had worked so hard and perhaps sacrificed a great deal to get together this gift. And when she finds it, we can only imagine how delighted she is. And we can imagine how she's relating the story to her friends. Girl, you won't believe what happened to me last night. I lost my coin, and I, yes, one of the coins, and I could not find it anywhere. And I turned the house upside down because if my dad knew I had lost that coin, he'd have had a cow. Man, was I relieved to find it. And look how beautiful it looks on my headdress. Now, that's a little bit of an overdramatization of what may have taken place. But that story that I've just told you was something that would have been very believable by the people who were listening to Jesus relate this story. Now this story has layers beyond simply losing something and finding it. 
What the woman finds is no normal piece of silver, but that piece of silver represents something. It represents the fact that she belongs to a family. It represents the fact that she's valued. It represents the fact that she's accepted, that she belongs. At the same time, it conveys a message to the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a story that parallels God's pursuit of the nation Israel. And in the Bible, we have this very vivid picture in the book of Hosea. Where Hosea is commanded to go and marry a prostitute. To take her as his wife. She marries Hosea and he brings her home, but she runs away, finds another lover. She gets cast off by that lover. She runs away, finds another lover. And finally, she becomes so degraded that she is put on the auction block and sold as a slave. And God commands Hosea to go back down into the marketplace and to buy his bride back. Now in those days, when slaves were sold, they were often sold naked. Here, shameful, totally exposed before the crowd, the bidding begins. Five shekels, ten shekels. The bidding rises higher and higher until it grows down and down, and then Hosea enters the bidding. I'll give. And the auctioneer goes, sold. And God says to Hosea, Hosea, speak this to my people, not just a message, but live this message so that they will understand that though they have given themselves to other gods, to worthless idols, I still love them. And I want them to come back. I want them to come home to me. This is the hope and the message of the gospel. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That God sent Jesus. And that when Jesus came into this world, He summarized His entire mission with one statement. Luke 19.10 I have come to seek and save that which is lost. Now you and I know that if you've been in church for any length of time, or maybe this is your first time, you probably have put it together that you're not here this morning by accident. There's a reason why 
the Lord wanted you to witness the baptism this morning. There's a reason why God wanted you to hear the songs that were sung to our great God. There's a reason why you were here and why this particular message was preached on this Sunday. There's a reason for it all. And now it's becoming crystal clear to you what that reason is. It may be that you've turned your back on God. You've wandered away from the safety of His care. And you needed to hear this morning that He still desires and pursues you and wants to have a relationship with you. See, when we're at our lowest and we feel completely unworthy, God says, you're worth so much that I was willing to give my son for you. And I want you to know this morning that no matter what you've done or where you've been, you can be redeemed and reclaimed. So if today you find yourself lost in sin, you may not even recognize the voice of God, but there is one thing I can speak to you very clearly. You can be certain He's pursuing you. And if you find yourself questioning your worth, know that you're highly prized by your Creator. You may not feel very valuable. You may be thinking to yourself, you know, I've really messed things up. I've done things I'm so ashamed of. Why would anybody love me? Well, you can know. God loves you. He wants you. He values you. And I want to say to you this morning that at the close of this service and throughout the week, our ministers are going to be standing here at the front following our service today. And you know if God is speaking to your heart today. And I don't want you to leave this morning without coming forward and speaking to one of our ministers and telling them, Pastor Andy, Pastor Michael, I just want to share with you, this is what God said to me today. And they'll know how to talk with you about your decision. And they'll pray with you and bring clarity where you may have more questions. And we'll spend as much time talking with you as you need to talk about your decision for Christ. But I want to encourage you to respond to God's voice today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for searching for us. Thank you for searching for me when I was lost and gone astray. When I had confused priorities. When I thought there were things in the world that would satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for saying we're worthy even when we mess up and we don't feel very lovable. Thank you for constantly pursuing us through every situation and every circumstance of life. And Lord, as one who professes to know you along with many others in this room this morning,
Lord, I'd ask that you help me to love others the way you love me. And forgive me for times when I have not. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.